Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and places mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, the mutiny on the bounty. Now let's return to our story about the mutiny on the bounty. Word of the mutiny and Bly's remarkable voyage preceded him, and after his log was officially presented to the Royal Navy, he published an abbreviated account of both his ordeal on the bounty and his subsequent journey. Quite popular, the book was meant as a smaller version of what he eventually intended as a lengthier description of the entire affair. Although Bly's book and celebrity were a positive outcome, he still faced the prospect of a court-martial, necessitated when a commander acts questionably, and also, in this case, the literal loss of his ship. Complicating matters, the official inquiry could not proceed until all of the surviving bounty crew members successfully returned from Batavia. This subsequent proceeding exonerated him completely, and potential causes or blame for the mutiny were not even considered the act of mutiny itself considered indefensible under any circumstances. Although Bly, promoted to the rank of commander, was eager to get back to Polynesia to complete his breadfruit mission and track down the mutineers, the latter task was assigned to another captain, Edward Edwards. Aboard the HMS Pandora, Edwards left England on November 7, 1790. His assignment was to recover the bounty, find and capture the mutineers, and transport them back to Britain for trial. Edward's first destination was Tahiti, a logical location to start his search. Unlike Bly, he was able to circumnavigate Cape Horn, his passage unencumbered by the storms that repelled the bounty in its initial attempt to reach the tropics. Edwards was accompanied by Thomas Hayward, a member of the crew of the bounty who accompanied Bly in the perilous voyage to Timor. Hayward was on board specifically because of his knowledge of Tahiti and his ability to identify any mutineers who were apprehended. Edwards' access to Tahiti on March 23, 1791, his voyage without incident. Before he even anchored his ship, he was approached by a boat containing the bounty's former armorer, Joseph Coleman. Coleman came on board and introduced himself. Within hours, two other men, Peter Haywood and George Stewart emerged from the island and boarded the Pandora. All three men denied any responsibility for the mutiny. Coleman, previously identified by Bly himself as one of the crew members who was loyal but forced to stay behind. Haywood asked Hayward to absolve him of any blame, but Hayward was noncommittal. The ruthlessness of Edwards was underlined by his subsequent order to immediately confine all three men in irons. He maintained that it was not up to him to render a judgment on guilt or innocence in the matter. That was the responsibility of a subsequent court-martial upon the Pandora's return to England. 
before confining the three men. Edwards gleaned information about the Tahitian location of any other former crew members of the bounty. Two men were already dead. Charles Churchill and Matthew Thompson murdered as a result of a conflict between the two. Within days, the other remaining 11 bounty refugees either voluntarily surrendered or were located and forcibly returned to the ship. Some, like Haywood, believed that they bore no responsibility for the mutiny. Others were either willing participants who wanted to remain on Tahiti or felt that their roles in the affair were so inconsequential that they would eventually be exonerated. All concerned received a rude awakening when Edwards permanently placed the 14 men in manacles and confined them in a specially constructed, stifling enclosure on top of the quarterdeck of the ship. Captain Edwards also received information about the specific activity of the bounty after the mutiny. Although Christian was accepted as the commander of the ship, hostility among the various factions soon threatened to undermine this authority. Understanding that finding some permanent location to settle might restore order and tranquility, the bounty headed for Tubuai, an island in the Austral Group, 350 miles south of Tahiti and today the southernmost outpost of French Polynesia. Unfortunately, the boat was attacked by natives in canoes, and despite successfully repelling this attack with artillery, it was clear that the mutineers needed both additional manpower and women to construct any habitable settlement. Only a week after arriving at Tubuai, the ship returned to Tahiti, concocting a false story that Bly was now with the deceased Captain Cook on a nearby island and that resupply was necessary. Cook was worshipped as a demigod in Tahiti, and vast amounts of wildlife, vegetables, and even 25 men, women, and children accompanied the ship back to Tubuai. The men of the bounty then spent the next three months attempting to construct not only viable housing, but a defensive enclosure they nicknamed Fort George after the King of England. But infighting, drunkenness, and resistance from the indigenous population doomed the process from its inception. Christian then called for a vote to decide the future of the 24 crew members. Sixteen not only voted to return to Tahiti, they also resolved to stay there even if the bounty headed elsewhere. Christian knew that he could never stay on Tahiti without eventual capture by the British Navy. He and eight other men declared that they would leave Tahiti and attempt to settle at some as yet undetermined location. After depositing the party of 16 on shore on September 21, 1789, the bounty quickly left the same evening, the last time the ship's location was positively identified. The only information that Edwards had to attempt to track down the ship was Christian's frequently stated intention to find some remote, uncharted island that made detection very difficult. For three months, Edwards headed west, crisscrossing the region and sending reconnaissance out to numerous islands, attempting to get information about the whereabouts of the bounty by trading with the locals. There was great excitement when wooden debris, clearly from a British ship, was retrieved from one of the Cook Islands. Eventually determined to be flotsam, this went nowhere, and on two occasions Edwards actually lost two shore parties and 14 of his crew members when bad weather prevented their return to the ship and they disappeared. Edwards unable to retrieve them or coordinate a successful rendezvous. 
By August, Edwards realized that locating the mutineers was highly unlikely. Following Admiralty orders, he headed west, destination England via the Torres Strait between Australia and New Guinea. The Pandora, towing a launch constructed by the mutineers during their stint on Tahiti, reached the vicinity of the Great Barrier Reef in late August. Whether he was careless or stupidly sailing in the dark, Edwards struck a reef on the 29th, the collision so severe that the ship took on four feet of water in five minutes. Throughout the night, desperate efforts were made to save the vessel, and three of the men classified by Bly as blameless in the mutiny, Coleman, McIntosh, and Norman were let out of the enclosure. They helped with attempts to pump water out of the ship to no avail. The other trapped mutineers, hearing sounds of the crew abandoning ship, attempted to get out of their manacles and screamed for help. Only the last-minute personal intervention of a crew member allowed any of the remaining 11 prisoners to escape. Lifeboats and the launch confiscated on Tahiti circled the sinking ship and retrieved men from the water. Eventually, the survivors reunited on a sandy island three miles away. 31 crew members and four prisoners drowned. Once again, a lengthy journey by open boat to Timor was necessitated. Thomas Hayward forced to endure this hardship for the second time. No one perished on the way, but the mutineers were imprisoned in Kupang's fort. There they would soon have company when Dutch authorities introduced the Edwards party to a group of alleged English shipwreck victims led by a couple, Mary and William Bryant. The Bryants, their children, and seven other men claimed to have been wrecked on the Great Barrier Reef. In fact, they were all escapees from the Australian penal colony, having hijacked a small cutter from Port Jackson, present-day Sydney, and then executing an equally lengthy and perilous journey to Timor. Although Dutch officials unwittingly initially treated the convicts well, most likely it was Edwards who saw through the ruse and demanded the incarceration of the entire party. Like the mutineers, Edwards treated the convicts vindictively. John Bryant and his two children died before they could reach England. Only Mary Bryant and four of the other escapees made it home. Typically, the punishment for fleeing the penal colony was death by hanging, but the convicts were viewed sympathetically, especially the bereaved Mary Bryant, and the cause of the five was taken up by James Boswell. Through the efforts of the famed journalist and biographer, eventually, Bryant and the surviving males were released from custody. Ten of the mutineers who accompanied the Bryant party also faced dreadful conditions, arriving at Portsmouth on June 20, 1792, where they were incarcerated in anticipation of their impending court-martial. The trial of the ten began on September 12, 1792. The most socially prominent of the mutineers, Peter Haywood, benefited from legal representation. Only William Muspratt, an able seaman, would enjoy a similar benefit, the other sailors too poor to afford a lawyer. William Bly was not present at the trial. He was already involved in a second breadfruit mission in the Pacific, and his testimony was delivered via his written report and from information from the bounty's official log, preserved and returned after the mutiny. 
The first actual officer on board the bounty to provide testimony was John Fryer, who was able to provide specific comments from Christian and to also, in his case, provide some self-serving testimony as to why he personally did not violently resist the takeover of the ship. In his case, he claimed that it was his plan to convince Christian to allow him to stay on the bounty and eventually persuade the mutineer to end the mutiny and relinquish control back to Fryer. In the end, Fryer was forced off the boat, but his weak excuse for a lack of resistance was never officially contradicted. The trial lasted a week, and after additional testimony from the likes of Thomas Hayward and another officer, John Hallett, the 12 naval officers assigned to try the case retired to reach a verdict. After only a few hours of deliberation, they acquitted Norman Coleman McIntosh and John Byrne, an inconsequential, partially blind sailor who convinced the court that he was also forced to stay behind. The other defendants were convicted and immediately sentenced to hang. However, the court also took the opportunity to request a royal pardon for Peter Haywood and James Morrison. Although there was some suspense, the two men were officially pardoned on the 26th of October, Haywood most likely because of his youth, 15 years old at the beginning of the Bounty's voyage and the prominence of his family. Two days later, Burkett, Ellison, and Millward were hanged on board the HMS Brunswick in Portsmouth Harbor. William Muspratt avoided this fate by filing an official appeal on the basis that he was denied the opportunity to call several sympathetic witnesses at trial. Eventually, because of public ambivalence over the executions and the belief that only the indigent sailors unfairly faced any punishment, his appeal was granted, and he also was pardoned by the Crown. By 1792, public opinion, formerly holding William Bly in high esteem, also shifted. After Haywood's pardon, his family also set about attempting to restore his good name and to depict Bly as constantly and excessively verbally abusive. William Muspratt's legal counsel also published the minutes of the court-martial with an appendix written by Fletcher Christian's brother Edward, attesting to Bly's excesses while in command. Bly responded in print, but the damage was done, and he was no longer the respected commander who achieved a maritime miracle. Throughout all of these machinations, the mystery remained. Where was the HMS Bounty and the crew of mutineers now missing for five years? Some of the mutineers that returned to England always maintained that Christian frequently discussed attempting to find some incredibly remote and uncharted destination where he and the mutineers would never be found. It is believed that in Bly's library, Christian stumbled upon a 1773 journal written by English naval explorer Philip Carteret, which gave the location of an obscure island, Pitcairn Island. Almost four months after leaving Tahiti, the bounty arrived at the supposed location of Pitcairn, but there was nothing there. Figuring that Carteret may have made a navigational error, Christian sailed along the same latitude, assuming that the longitude was incorrect. Within days, the rocky, frequently inaccessible, and uninhabited island was sighted on January 15, 1790, approximately 190 miles east of Carteret's faulty designation. The bounty dropped anchor and began to transport food, livestock, and other essentials ashore. 
after the ship was emptied, it was run aground and eventually burned, some accounts maintaining that this was unanimously intentional to avoid detection. While it is also possible that the ship was set afire by mutineer Matthew Quintal to prevent any possibility of a return to England, the bounty sank, making such a return impossible. Six Tahitian men, twelve women, and a child had accompanied the nine bounty mutineers, and this entire group now had no other choice but to attempt to scratch out an existence on this two-by-one-mile rock in the middle of nowhere. During the first year of the island's occupation, some fundamental issues quickly created a lord-of-the-flies-like environment. Two of the Tahitian wives of the mutineers died, and two wives of the Tahitian men were then forcibly taken to replace them. Some of the Tahitians then conspired to kill the mutineers. They were betrayed by their wives and killed themselves. Unbeknownst to any of the settlers, in 1791, Edward's Pandora actually sailed quite close to the island on his way to Tahiti, passing within 75 miles, but still not close enough to have sighted the remote sanctuary. The tiny enclave persevered. The first child born on Pitcairn Island was a boy conceived on Tahiti by Fletcher Christian and his wife, Miamiti. Their son was named Thursday October, as this was the day and month of his birth in 1790, and Christian did not want any traditional names that reminded him of England. Christian fathered two other children, a son and a daughter, born in 1792 and 1793, respectively. By 1797, William Bly had moved on from the notoriety of the Bounty Mutiny. Having successfully completed a second breadfruit voyage in the tropics, the escalation of hostilities with France necessitated a full mobilization of the British fleet, and Bly was given command of the HMS Director, a warship that played a prominent role in the decisive victory over the French-allied Dutch Navy at Camperdown in 1798. Bly also fought prominently with Lord Nelson at Copenhagen, a major event of Nelson's career in which Bly commanded the HMS Glatton, a 56-gun warship. These military exploits bolstered Bly's reputation, and in 1805 he received the prestigious appointment as Governor of New South Wales, a notorious outpost in which wealthy settlers ignored government authority. His contentious personality and acerbic tongue immediately alienated him from several influential officials and settlers, perhaps justifiably, as a well-connected clique of government officials and entrepreneurs were circumventing laws and profiting from inside deals to enrich themselves, a practice Bly resolved to halt. This time, instead of the mutiny of a ship, Bly precipitated the revolt of an entire colony, an organized uprising known as the Rum Rebellion was the culmination of local hostility to Bly that led to British troops actually deposing the governor and placing him under house arrest on January 26, 1808. The nickname came over Bly's interference in a brisk but illegal monopoly of the sale of rum in the province, one of many sources of insider profit. Unfortunately, because of the considerable distance between Australia and Britain, the entire affair took two years to sort out, Bly spending much of this time either detained on land or under house arrest on a ship, the HMS Porpoise. 
He was eventually replaced, the rebellious infantry reassigned, and several government officials recalled to Britain, where they were court-martialed and mildly rebuked. By now, it must have been clear that Bly was ill-suited for any position of authority, but he still retained the support of influential individuals like Sir Joseph Banks and continued to receive promotions, first to the position of Rear Admiral upon his return from Australia and ultimately to the rank of Vice Admiral. With the collapse of Imperial France, Bly never received another significant military posting. Despite his reputation as a cruel and tyrannical commander, he was quite close to his wife, who spent most of her time in Britain defending her husband's reputation during his lengthy and frequent travails. Having spent most of their marriage apart, their romantic golden years were cut short when Betsy Bly died in 1812, aged 59. Bly died in London in 1817 at the age of 63, never sailing again after the debacle in Australia. At the time of his death, Bly would have known of the fate of his nemesis, Fletcher Christian. At the beginning of the 19th century, the whaling and seal hunting industries were beginning to thrive throughout the maritime world, and merchant ships explored previously isolated areas of the Pacific Ocean. Predictably, in early February of 1806, an American vessel, the Topaz, captained by Mayhew Folger and hailing from Massachusetts, was hunting for seals when the ship stumbled upon what appeared to be an island. This land did not appear on any of Folger's maps, but he was familiar with Carteret's journal and suspected that the uncharted territory was Pitcairn Island. As the topaz drew closer, the captain was surprised to observe smoke that was clearly from some human habitation. He was approximately 800 miles from any known populated outpost. Before Folger began to even consider how he might access the rocky island through the treacherous surf, a Polynesian outrigger canoe with three young men suddenly approached the ship and hailed the crew in English. The canoe came close enough so that Folger could engage in conversation, and the young men eagerly asked where the topaz was from. The captain figured that they might not even be aware of the United States, so he responded by saying England. One of the island residents, a teenager, then asked if Folger knew of his father, and when that went nowhere, he asked bluntly, Did you ever know Captain Bly? My father sailed with him. As the canoeist guided the ship through the tricky and turbulent passage to the shore, Folger, like all sailors of the time period, quite familiar with the Bounty Saga, began to wonder if he had discovered the hiding place of the Bounty Mutineers. Once ashore, he was surprised to observe that most of the inhabitants of the island were either women, teenagers, or young children, 35 natives in all. Only one male adult was present, and he was introduced as Alexander Smith, the last surviving member of the nine mutineers who originally settled on the island. Smith, a former deserter whose real name was John Adams, relaxed when Folger explained that he actually was not from England, but from America. The captain of the Topaz was correct in that Smith, a.k.a. Adams, had no idea what America was, but he opened up about what had happened once the bounty arrived on Pitcairn. The nine mutineers divided up all of the land and expropriated most of the women as their wives. The six Tahitian men were treated as slaves and eventually rebelled and killed five of the mutineers, including Fletcher Christian. 
because many of the Tahitian women were romantically involved with the dead mutineers, they were angry and subsequently murdered all of the Tahitian men. A period of relative calm pervaded Pitcairn until one of the mutineers, a former distillery worker named William McCoy, figured out how to distill alcohol from an indigenous plant. McCoy became so alcoholic that he eventually committed suicide by jumping off of a cliff into the sea. Another mutineer, Matthew Quintal, quite unstable to begin with, began drunkenly threatening Adams and another survivor, Edward Young, so vehemently that Adams and Young then plotted to kill him during one of his blackouts. This they did with a hatchet in 1799. Edward Young was more educated than Adams, and the two men seemed to have had a religious awakening following the death of Quintal. Although Adams continued to drink heavily, he and Young studied the Bounty's Bible and improved Adams' literacy. When Edward Young died of asthma in December of 1800, John Adams was the last man standing. Initially, as the only adult male on the island, he took several wives and continued to heavily abuse alcohol until supposedly, after a profound hallucination, he found God and devoted himself to a religious metamorphosis that resulted with him becoming the spiritual leader of the island. Folger did not stay long on Pitcairn, but Adams was not only generous with information, he also gave Folger two remarkable gifts, the Bounty's Compass and Chronometer. The topaz headed for South America, but the ship and Folger were briefly detained on Juan Fernandez Island, where the artifacts were confiscated. The chronometer eventually made it to the Greenwich Naval Museum, but more importantly, Folger was subsequently released, and upon reaching the Chilean seaport of Valparaiso, he informed the English naval attaché of his remarkable discovery. This information was received by the Admiralty in May of 1809, but there was little reaction, and other than an aside in a quarterly review, there was no reaction at all in the popular press. Ongoing hostilities with France, an American as the source of the information as opposed to an Englishman, or even simply that the Admiralty had no interest in bringing renewed attention to such a sensationally scandalous incident were possible explanations for the lack of official interest. This explained why six years later, when two British warships approached Pitcairn, they were again surprised by the island's uncharted location and obvious signs of a settlement. The two ships, the HMS Britain and the HMS Tagus, were searching for the American ship USS Essex. This American raider, not to be confused with the whaler Essex of Moby Dick fame, was in the process of terrorizing British merchant and whaling ships in the region to the extent that the Royal Navy was forced to deploy several warships to put a stop to this War of 1812 U.S. rampage. On September 17, 1814, as the two ships and their captains, Sir Thomas Staines and Philip Pippon, Puzzled over the unidentified rock in front of them, they could see some natives launching their canoe into the surf. Like Folger before them, they were stunned when the canoe pulled alongside the boat, and an occupant, who turned out to be Thursday October Christian, now 24 years old, hailed them in English. He and another teenager, George Young, the son of bounty mutineer Edward Young, came on board and were asked to join the officers for a meal. Dressed in minimal Polynesian garb, Fletcher Christian's son further astonished and ingratiated himself 
by breaking into Christian prayer before dinner was served. The two captains were then skillfully transported to the shore, their access impossible without knowledgeable guidance. There they accessed the main settlement where, by now, the inhabitants had fashioned an orderly group of houses around what resembled a village square. Initially, John Adams, a.k.a. Smith, remained secluded, but when a relative determined that the British were not intent on arresting or detaining him and were in fact amazed and gratified to have stumbled upon Pitcairn, John Adams emerged and introduced himself. The British officers engaged him in lengthy conversation, and Adams explained his background, but also the deep religious faith that pervaded the entire population of the island. The British commanders observed the sparsely dressed but innocent-looking females who did not seem out of place in such a pristine environment. Adams also commented specifically on the fate of Fletcher Christian, who we explained had never recovered from the trauma of the mutiny and had alienated the Polynesian male contingent with cruel and abusive behavior that ultimately led to his assassination. After a brief tour and a look inside some of the modest residences that were furnished and maintained in an orderly fashion, Staines and Pippon then withdrew. Their last surprise came when they asked Adams if he wanted to ever return to England. Instead of refusal, the Pitcairn patriarch expressed great interest in returning to his homeland, but this response generated such an emotional outcry from the other natives that Adams and the captains agreed that this journey should probably wait. Both Staines and Pippon wrote positively and extensively about their discovery, their perspective that the settlement was a kind of literal morality play in which an initially wicked act spawned a conscientious religious community led by a pious and moral elder. Their accounts generated great interest, and Pitcairn Island was frequently visited by numerous ships in the ensuing years. These interactions became important to Pitcairn's residents as they provided essentials like tools, clothing, and even books. Much of these goods provided for free by Christian organizations intent on supporting this uniquely devout community. The hierarchy of the settlement remained stable, with Adams Pitcairn's venerated patriarch and any visitor obliged to meet and be regaled with stories from Pitcairn's early settlement history. Disconcertingly, over time, Adams' contradictory accounts of the murder of Christian, the violence between the mutineers and their Tahitian antagonists, and even the demise of the various mutineers themselves began to generate skepticism over the veracity of the elder's account. Unfortunately, there was no way to, to document what actually happened during critical moments after the mutiny. Adams died on March 5, 1829, he is the only mutineer whose grave location on Pitcairn is identifiable. All of the other final resting places are unknown. Following the relative stability of Adams' leadership, the settlement underwent several periods of dislocation and unrest. In 1831, the community appealed to the British government to help relocate them to Tahiti, the settlers believing that life on the island was too harsh and eventually unsustainable. Some of the more prominent refugees, including Thursday October Christian, quickly contracted fatal illnesses. The modern civilization of Tahiti soon perceived as decadent and immoral, and within six months many of the settlers returned to Pitcairn. Despite some internal political squabbles, 
Life on the Rock continued until another communal decision to abandon the island was implemented. With Pitcairn Island's population growing, a particularly severe storm drastically affecting fishing, and again the fear that farmland on the tiny island might eventually be depleted, the settlement again appealed to the British government to provide a solution. Ultimately, the abandoned former convict prison location of Norfolk Island was selected as a viable alternative, and in 1856, all 193 of Pitcairn's inhabitants, some reluctantly, boarded a ship and sailed to their new home. On paper, Norfolk, with cultivated farmland, domestic animals, and already existing residential infrastructure, seemed reasonable, but in less than two years, 16 people opted to return to Pitcairn. Another group returned in 1864, but this iteration of the community struggled. As the whaling industry disappeared, the only visiting ships typically steamships carrying travelers. Thus began the practice of selling wood carvings and tourist items that is still a major source of island revenue. Although the emigres to Norfolk prospered, life on Pitcairn remained difficult throughout the 19th century and the island continued to receive aid and information from various religious entities. One of these groups, the Seventh-day Adventists, eventually asked permission to send a missionary in 1886, and this gentleman's effectiveness was underlined by the island's subsequent official adoption of this belief system. Throughout the 20th century, the universal perception of the island as a unique utopia embodying religious faith sobriety and perseverance in taming a difficult habitat remained intact. Hollywood's repeated glorification of the bounty story only reinforced this international respect. Always enterprising, the island began issuing postage stamps in 1940, a significant product that greatly increased the community's revenue stream. Even so, the island's population dwindled steadily and an explanation for this depletion was provided in 2004 with the revelation that child sexual abuse and rape were routinely imposed upon the female inhabitants of Pitcairn Island for several generations, and that once they were able, many female inhabitants fled to New Zealand and Australia. Although most of Pitcairn's inhabitants either vociferously denied the allegations or claimed that the island's culture was different and the mores of the outside world did not apply, a lengthy trial orchestrated by the countries of New Zealand and Great Britain convicted six of the seven men indicted for crimes related to sexual abuse. The guilty included Steve Christian, Pitcairn's mayor, a sixth-generation direct descendant of Fletcher Christian and the chief beneficiary of a patronage system that allowed him to control Pitcairn Island as his own personal fiefdom. Two of his sons, Randy and Sean, were also convicted of rape, but the convictions remained controversial on the island, so much so that Sean was subsequently twice elected mayor. Unfortunately, when members of the international press arrived to document the trial, they determined that the yesteryear of devout worship and sobriety had deteriorated into a society where alcoholism, intimidation, and sexual assault of children as young as nine years old was widespread and collectively acceptable. Despite this dysfunction, Pitcairn Island, as the last British Pacific Overseas Territory, a euphemism for colony, has received many millions of dollars from the British government. Perhaps to combat the local conspiracy theory that the UK would actually like to expel 
Pitcairn's inhabitants and end its financial obligation. Today, the population has dwindled to 47, mostly older, highly subsidized residents. 232 years after Fletcher Christian impetuously set William Bly adrift on the Pacific Ocean, the decline of interest in postage stamps, the collective departure of most of the island's females, and a clannish insularity that discourages any outsiders from immigration or investment has established that Pitcairn Island's viability as an ongoing community is in dire straits. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the mutiny on the bounty. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books The Bounty by Carolyn Alexander and Lost Paradise by Kathy Marks. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.